This is The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. And as with our last episode of The Lonely Voice, we're fortunate to have with us special guest Alberto Reyes Morgan to help us discuss Remember by Juan Rulfo. This is a bonus episode for a very short story of just a few pages. However, as we've seen in our previous three offerings about Juan Rulfo's work, there's a lot to say. At the center of Remember is the refrain from the first-person narrator to some listener, a contemporary of his who went to school with him and should be aware of every incident that's recalled, every person named and described, every sad situation unearthed from the mothballs of memory. Remember, he says over and again, while himself, as we'll see, showing evidence that time has blunted the edges of his recall, the vagaries of his mind emerge in details that are by turns vivid or vague. What is certain is that something terrible has occurred. Urbano's childhood was already fraught. One single event from the fifth grade stands as some kind of unfortunate touchstone. This one time when Urbano ended up humiliated, so disgraced, that he vowed a kind of revenge. The narrator wants us to remember it as he leads us to a story about an act by Urbano that is dark and unspeakable and also inexplicable. From the narrator's vantage point, it would seem that the listener must remember what happened over the length of those years because he was there too. He must also bear the burden of what occurred. He must remember, and he must remember all of it, including what happened in elementary school. In his essay, Unforgivable, Peter Orner discusses the story with reference to an incident at a bridge by William Maxwell. It's a vignette, or story, he says, that has little action, little character development. It's just a voice, really. And in this story, too, as in Rulfo's Remember, the narrator recalls something that occurred years ago. In Maxwell's story, as Orner describes it, it happened among a group of Boy Scouts around age 12. The older boys in the troop decided on hazing the younger members, including Maxie Rabinowitz. While none of the boys is seriously injured in a feat that, quote, knocks the wind out of every one of them, the narrator recalls it as an inexplicable act of violence perpetrated for no reason. Writes Orner, we have all done things we wish we could erase forever from the record. No matter how we airbrush our own histories, the hurt we have caused will always reach out for us. Orner shares an anecdote about the time he hurt the feelings of another boy in the seventh grade. Writes Orner, and God knows I've done a lot worse and a lot more recently. This is the only thing on a long list of things I take back. He adds, this is why Maxwell's story transcends anecdote, because the story refuses any absolution. You live with it period. 
Orner quotes Maxwell's narrator now as an older man who considers that perhaps even those boys who underwent the hazing may not even remember the incident, considering the multitude of things that happen in any person's life. He adds, Cruelty could never again take them totally by surprise, but I have remembered it. Writes Horner, what the story does, finally, is instruct the narrator on the nature of his own heart. Here's our discussion of Juan Rulfo's Remember. And I did have one question. There's a typo in this story, is there not? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I think on this, well, this is maybe for our discussion, but in the, I think the old translation has this story, um, has 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 the rhythms of the story better. You know, I I gotta say, man, I keep there's things I like about this one, and we talked about this back back like a year ago. Um, I I like a lot about this, uh, Stavins and uh, Augenbrand did. But Shade, I think the rhythm, exactly, he just said it, man. He captures Rufo's rhythm, I think. Uh, I mean, he might sacrifice some of the, um, you know, strictly uh, uh, textual, uh, literal yeah. things. Yeah. Yeah. But he, 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 he holds on to the rhythm. Way and, and, and some of those things, I mean, it's hard to imagine not having them when you look at the new translation. But, I mean, going back, first of all, there is no typo in the Shad, which was helpful. And, yeah. And it just, it, you know, we're talking about, sorry, are we talking about the her, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Just making sure we're on the same. Yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, it yeah. totally throws off the story. It does. Yeah. You know, I lost like half a day yesterday going nuts <laughs> over that. Like that. I have, I been reading this wrong, you know, like, I mean, I did look at the original. I, I don't know if you guys did, but is it, is it the problem? You know, I mean, it's obviously just really sloppy, but it's a there. I, I believe he uses lay. I understand why he does it like in a way it's kind of part what's funny is in a way it means Stavans bought into the story in a way because a way. yeah yeah because that's how Rufo sets the story up I mean how about the fact that he changes the name of one of the characters we get two names for the sister right yeah right and and he and he really doesn't go into detail about that and I think it's because of the way um I that mean drove- it's called Acuerda to remember it's talking about memory you know um, it drove me crazy, does. but it's clearly, I mean, Rufo knew what he was doing. Yeah. You know? but, but, but going, sorry, back to the Spanish. Yeah, you're right. Um, that's in, in the Spanish that is, there's no gender there. There's no, there's no way to know. I mean, that, I'll be honest with you. The first time I read this, I do remember being very confused by the first three paragraphs because it's sort of meandering, it's dropping in all these family members. You're just going kind of what, who? I mean, it, it, it's totally reasonable to, th- and like, like you say, like saying like, the translator went with the rhythm of the story or went with the kind of got bought into the stories that the guy is like this this guy is remembering everything about everybody so you know exactly. it's easy to take your eye off the ball that the story's about Urbano because because the storyteller does too so I totally get it but still it was like it was a little bit of a frustrating because it, it showed that he didn't quite get the story in its totality you know, yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, unfortunately, a... I think so, and and it brought out all my insecurities there for a second. <laughs> anyway, I'm glad we're I'm glad we're on the same page on that. But you bet. Go ahead. Sorry, I got us off down a tangent right away. No, that's a that's an important <laughs> tangent. I think it's not a tangent. I mean, there's a lot in here, as you all are saying about how memory works, and he's saying, "Acuérdate, remember." Um, and in fact, 
you know, at a certain point, we're wondering how reliable his memory is. And, you know, that first part, it's just so maddening that the very first, <laughs> the, uh, you know, who are these people? Why do two of them have to be named Urbano for crying out loud? Um, and I made my little chart again. I always make my little chart with Lima and Urbano Senior and Fidencio, the two daughters. And then the nicknames to confound everything even more. So yeah, the, no, the, I'm with the, you. The chart breaks down at the sister-in-law. Yeah, the sister -in -law. <laughs> no. but, but can I ask a question, Yvette? Because you, you chose this story and I, I'm really glad you did in a lot of ways. And I, I would like uh, somebody to read the, the opening because it really is 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 not just maddening but madcap you know what i mean and just like <laughs> totally hilarious the hiccup is, is a riot as is the you know the haggling over the tomatoes you know he does it again in an incredibly dark sad story it's also pretty funny but i'm wondering yvette why did you what what drew you to this one you know i was thinking about i wanted something that I could get close to without being totally destroyed, but then I was destroyed. <laughs> that's the one too that Rufo does right there. I'm telling you, you're, that's it. So I chose it because I, you know, I don't remember now to be honest with you, Peter, but I, I remember, and I think I wrote to you guys and I said, I like the elasticity and the blank slate of it and really I could not have been more wrong in, and I've read the story 50 times over the years, right? I don't know if it, it, it hit, it really hit me a totally different way, this go around. Is it fair to say that, I mean, just going back to what you, how you started this talking about the title itself, that we're talking about remember as in a command. Oh yeah, remember. this is, remember. he He wants you, to, he needs you to remember. And and the you is, is, in the you in this case is somebody who was there for all these events, but doesn't seem to be as obsessed with them as our narrator, like a friend of mine who might be like, what, you mean you don't remember when so-and-so did so -and such and such in seventh grade? What, you don't remember? <laughs> like that's kind of the, and that's the refrain of the story. And that's what makes it just so, I mean, it's so natural. I mean, this is something that happens you know, all the time to people, this kind it, of. Story. It is. And this conflation of details and names that's so frustrating. You know, I'm so like when I, if I tell a joke, I, I always ruin the punchline, like that kind of thing, like this kind of, so it's so confusing and you get ahead of yourself. And um, it also reminded me of this friend from high school uh, that I had who would, who would always say, Le dije, le dije. She would tell a story and she would, she, she was so animated and she would say, and then I told him, or then I told her, and she would repeat that. And then she would say, le dije, te dije, le dije. <laughs> she would say like, and I told her, I told you, I told her, right? This is like, this, it's crazy. Um, so they put me in the mind of that. It's just like this, just running at the mouth at this listener making the assumption that there don't need to be too many context clues because this person was there too, except 
yeah, this person's a lot more obsessed than the listener is. I'd go as far as saying he's he's burdened by this memory of Urbano, right? I mean, I mean that's how it felt like to me, particularly towards the end. I mean, he starts off in a sort of half-joking thing, dropping in these funny references about the mom, Berenjena, which it would have to do with the typo there. I believe that's his mom. Mm -hmm. um, but towards the end, you know, these, these memories weigh on him and he needs you to, you know, unburden some of that weight, you, the, the person he's talking to. I think that's what affected, what hit me totally differently this time is I, you know, I wanted a story where I could have a little bit of distance, not have my emotions simmering in my throat for whatever reason. <laughs> um, and for, for whatever reason this time, no, it was, it was there. And for precisely the reason you're saying, like he is burdened by it. He can act all day. Like, no, like maybe it was this way, maybe it was that way. Like there's this kind of um, just recalling the facts, um, not adding a lot to it, not so emotionally invested. And then as you say, Beto, you realize no, he was, and, and therefore we are too then devastated after all. I, I got a I got a friend, an old friend who, you know, he's part of a group of friends and uh, and he's dropped away. You know, he's gone, even though we know where he is. And and uh, I'm just I was thinking like we always every time we're together, we talk about this guy and we talk what happened to what happened, you know, and I, I feel like I get the same sense of the, this narrator is thinking about Urbano, like what happened to Urbano, what happened to Urbano. And, 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 and as you say, I mean, I don't want to cut to the chase because I think we need to talk about the last paragraph at some point. Also, we don't want to wreck it for people, but the last paragraph hit me so hard, like in that way, like, oh yeah, like, like there is like what, I mean, you know, what was up ultimately, what was up with this guy, you know, and, and that the same kind of conversations we talk about in terms of what happened to this friend, like he dropped off, what happened, you know, what, and, and the, the narrator here knows all the facts, but then he gets to that last fact. And I think he, he, he it's like, even he doesn't, even he can't explain that one, you know, and, and we're left with it. I was wondering if we could read the first paragraph though, just to give people a sense of what we're dealing with here. Remember Urbano Gomez, Don Urbano's son, Dimas' grandson, the one who directed Pastorelas, the Christmas plays, and who died reciting the cursed angel complaint during the time of influence? It's been years since then, maybe 15. But you must remember him. Remember we used to call him El Abuelo, grandfather, because his other son, Fidencio Gomez, had two very playful daughters, one dark and very short, who'd been given the mean nickname of La Remingada, stuck up, and the other one who was towering and who had light blue eyes and who people even said wasn't his, and about whom you can't say much more than she suffered from hiccups. Remember the commotion that broke out when we were in mass and at the exact moment of the elevation, she had a hiccup attack, which sounded as if she were laughing and crying at the same time, until they took her outside and they gave her a bit of sugar water and then she calmed down. She ended up marrying Lucio Chico, the owner of the mezcal bar that used to belong to Librado, up the river, where the Teodulos' linseed mill is. That she married uh, Lucio Chico has got nothing to do with the story. I mean, he, 
the first thing, right? The command, remember Urbano Gomez. Then he goes on to not really talk about Urbano Gomez. Right, he's talking to his grandfather. His grandfather, like, and he's the one who did the, you know, those those passion plays, right? At Christmas time, yeah. <laughs> right? There, is there, there's another typo. The time of the influence. Yeah, I can kind again. I can kind of see why he did that. Um, because in the original, you know, I don't want to fall into this hole of talking about the translations because yeah. uh, I have way too much to say. But um, but it says influencia. Right, but in but in Spanish, Rulfo is adopting the kind of uh, mistake that I mean. Later on, he does it too with the word paralysis in Spanish. Ah, okay. Um, he's like in Spanish, it's incorrect, right? Grammatically, it's incorrect, but it's what somebody from like a rural small town would say. In fact, there was a politician that said influencia instead of influenza a couple years ago, <laughs> um, and he was mocked a, a lot for it. It's hard for because. Time of the influence, I thought, had some other meaning. Right. And, and so it's hard, it's a tough one in English to pull it's that so hard. I would have I would have yeah. gone with the influence, maybe thrown in an article in there just to keep the mistake, but make it obvious that it's talking about the disease. Yeah, I mean, just being in a pandemic right now, you don't want to get that, you don't want a reader to not get that this is the time of the, the flu, flu. You know, the but flu. but anyway, it's just, it's a I thought that's why I thought that's why Yvette had picked it. <laughs> but you know what? What I love about it is what you're saying that he's adopting the malapropism, right? Like this crazy Norm Crosby, <laughs> you know, kind of a a malapropism. Um, and your example about what was the per, what was the one the mistake the person made recently, Beto, that you said. Yeah, instead of saying influenza, saying influenza, yeah. yeah, right. There was like a Chilean, I can't remember, there was a story about a Chilean leader who said, um, uh, Buenas noches televisores, or something like that, televidentes, <laughs> <laughs> or, uh, you know, so the, I, I just find That's it good. so funny that, you know, it's line three, it's the third line of the story where we're already with Urbano Gomez and Don Urbano and the abuelo and the plays, the pastorelas and this cursed angel complaint and then this mistake. And so, you know, I can imagine somebody reading this and Googling time of influence why not <laughs> you know somebody might i mean again i'm not and i'm not i want to knock the translators or you know we should give you know we're on texas public radio we should give some props to university of texas press for keeping this book alive for you know 60 years in english in two different translations and commissioning you know a, a new translation where you know i'm sure there wasn't a lot of money in it so i get it i i could have used you know, there. You know, I I like notes at the back. Now, I don't want a footnote ever, but I'm just saying, like, it would some contextual notes might have been appropriate here. But the bottom, yeah, I, I agree, I agree. But but again, the bottom line is about this first paragraph is how much is in it. You know, it's so thick. With like, we talked last time and a couple times, Yvette, didn't we? Just about you know, kind of Rufo and the idea of silence and yeah. you know, kind of he didn't have a lot to say. You know, and then you, I was thinking about that, like you contract, you take this story, this is, uh, this guy's bursting with stuff to say, you know, so there's no kind of, there's no reticence here, 
there's no kind of this like almost cliche about Rufo is that he, you know, he didn't talk much. You know, we've done a couple of two, store, two stories in a row where we have narrators who won't shut up. The story's only five pages, but it's a thick five pages. And this, the paragraph that Beto read was so like thick with incident and with names and with, you know, it just pulls you right in to the universe that these guys are a part of, or presumably guys. And I like that ambiguity of it, it. There's he's so precise in his details, and then you're still not exactly sure he's remembering, or he's redirecting our focus for whatever reason. I mean, I think we can guess, but um, so that also draws me in. The, you know, the the weird humor, you know, this thing with the language, the thing with all of the people, the hiccups. I mean, it's sort of like, um, you know, there are some things that you want to sort of zoom out on and focus on to uh, develop a little bit. And, and that ain't it, except it is. It's kind of perfect that he would move our attention to that. And then, then of course, later, our attention moves to this terrible situation of the mother scavenging for food or you know the both the industriousness and the sort of cheating ways of urbano with his schoolmates you know it's it's like you're not sure this is this is kind of weird it's hard to believe he doesn't seem very certain and then there's all this detail so that there's a lot of richness in in that part of the story for me too yeah, um, I thought, and you know, again, it starts um, trying to describe Urbano, goes into the grandfather, goes into the cousins, second paragraph goes into the mom, I, again, still not yet on Urbano, right? He starts talking about the mom, La Berenjena, which uh, just by the way, on the side, do you guys realize, uh, do you guys know why she got that nickname? No, I'm, I'm just curious, because it comes, it, comes it comes from a saying, I'm just making oh, the, egg, the eggplant. Tell me this, tell she's us. Because preg- she's pregnant a lot. Uh, uh, that might be it, but there's a really famous, like, uh, I mean, this is just from bringing from my own background okay. knowledge. Tell but, us. Yeah, there's a, there's a dicho, there's a saying that te metiste en un berenjanal, like when you get into problems, uh-huh. um, is that you, into, that you went into the berenjena plant, into the egg plant, plant because apparently the leaves uh, cause... Um, not lesions, but some kind of rash of the oh. plant. So there's this saying oh. that people say about the eggplant plant, Labrinkena. Um, and so, because if you read, if you read, he's literally saying how she always gets into problems, particularly in the Spanish version, in the original text, metida en lios. So mm-hmm. it goes hand in hand there. It's almost like, it's almost kind of jokey though, um, as he's saying the story, the narrator. There's this sort of, like I said earlier, this kind of joke, uh, tone, jokey tone in his way of telling that really changes by the end. But anyway, that was just something. That oh, I, interesting. I did not know that dicho. Yeah. And then <laughs> apparently, again, kind of jokey, very sad, though. She goes broke from, from paying for the funerals of her children that die. Um, because she serves everybody uh, canela or the, um, I think the translation doesn't actually translate uh, cinnamon canela. It just says she paid for the drinks, right? Mm-hmm. 
because of the drink she gave to those attending the wake. Again, something that's kind of uh, funny because usually what, what people do at these funerals is they serve uh, cinnamon tea, canela, and uh, they'll spike the tea with booze. So it's like the cinnamon is expensive, but so is the booze. But people basically, it's another excuse for a party, right? So it's sort of saying she went broke from kind of partying or throwing these festive occasions for her dead children. Again, just very dark humor kind of thing. Yeah. And it, it shows, again, well, Rufo, I mean, you know, making jokes about dead kids is not exactly something you can generally pull off. But Rufo, <laughs> Rufo's happy, happy. I mean, maybe not a joke, but it clearly, like, she went broke because of, you know, the alcohol she bought at her kids' funerals. That's, you know, that's not not funny, sadly. Right. But, and, and also paying the church so that they would send the yeah. choir to sing songs, right? Things like that. I mean, it makes you want to cry, but also you can't help but laugh. I mean, like, I, not to be all professorial. So the Chekhov story, Rothschild's fiddle, he, he, he makes a similar move about, you know, that there's a, a, a coffin maker and he doesn't want to make kids coffins because they, you know, he doesn't make as much money. You know, he doesn't think about the fact that he's making coffin for a dead kid. It's that he doesn't. Oh. It, it's a similar sort of, um, you know, gallows humor that that both writers aren't afraid of because people aren't afraid of those kind of jokes. Exactly, exactly. Especially, you know, I mean, we hear it from the narrator. These, you know, people from these rural areas, these small towns, they live, you know, with death as a very present thing. You know, you you have to joke about that, which. You have to face every day, the, the, you know, the sadness that you see every day. So I think it's, it's, it keeps very true to, again, to the time and place of this. I mean, you know, they, they're just coming out of, a, of the Spanish flu uh, uh, epidemic at the time, too. It's, we're, we're a few years after that, right? And right after that was came the Cristero War. I mean, most of these stories in this book are set around the time of the Cristero War, sometime after that in the 30s during Lázaro Cárdenas. Um, presidency and um, even Luvina, we talked about how they, in a way, I maybe I pushed too hard on the no time and place thing with Luvina because I was thinking even in this one, by the first sentence, he gives us, Rulfo gives us a very specific time, the flu, and in Luvina, he gave us the educational reforms of uh, Lázaro Cárdenas. So you pretty much always know what decade you're in. What do you make of the quotation marks around to sweeten her children's mouths? There's, there are quotation marks around that in that section about her scavenging for food. Basically food that's already been thrown out and half cooked. Like who is he quoting? To, who did he hear? Was it some adult when he was a kid? You know, like, why is she doing that? Well, to sweeten her children's mouth. No, I was just going to say like that would be impressive to a kid, I think. She doesn't raise her children, right? She dies when she has the second child. Mm -hmm. um, so I would assume it was something that an adult saw her do and then told our narrator. You know, a lot of this stuff, it's her th things, I'm assuming that the narrator has sort of been told or heard, right? Because he's the age of um, Urbano. I'm glad you're saying that because I kept thinking about this go around about the telephone game right and the way that information is the expression of it is corrupted every time you tell it again how so much of this is you know retelling and thinking back and kind of sounds like he's 
told the story before. <laughs> um, so I wondered about that. I wondered like how much of it is he retelling, right? That it's become sort of part of the lore of the town um, and everybody should remember it, acuérdate, right? Um, although this particular person seems, you know, as, as Peter said, really obsessed with it. And, and as you said, really burdened by it. And I think for me, it's a, there's, there's a big change there uh, as, as I perceived it in the tone of the story after he describes, uh, Urbano's, um, um, a business like, uh, personality of always, you know, selling things that he got cheaper, more expensive to them. And he's almost annoyed at the fact that they all bought things from him and he sold whatever he had in his pockets. He raffled off all kinds of junk he would find in his pockets. I got the marbles, tops and spinners and even green beetles, the kind you tie a thread to one of its legs so it doesn't fly too far. I love that. <laughs> yeah, those are those are actually, uh, they're going extinct. I haven't, they're kind of disappearing. It's very sad. But it seems like he's almost annoyed, you know, that they all bought into this. And I felt very sympathetic towards Urbano in, in this kind of um, scene because, you know, he's just trying to get his nut. This, this kid, his mom died. His mom didn't raise him. Don Urbano, his father, essentially just gave him his name. That's all he gave him. He never shows up again. He comes in the first line of the story, and then we never hear back from him. So this kid has nothing. And, you know, he's just trying to make whatever money he can. And, and uh, the narrator is saying how, well, he basically was ripping, ripping them all off or, you know, something to that extent. And then he comes that line on page 89, maybe he turned bad then, or maybe he was that way from birth because they all used to just go see his sister who sold tepache drink and not want to pay, right? So they're really the ones that were ripping him off. They didn't want to pay his sister for the tepache, which she had to sell to, to uh, sustain her husband because, um, <laughs> because he went dumb, apparently, people-minded. I mean, because that's where the story, you know, we can make an argument that this is where the story starts. I mean, he, the, 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 the first page two page two full and a half two and a half pages are really prelude to uh maybe he turned bad then or maybe he was that way from birth he was thrown out of school and then he's here's the Urbano story which is actually shorter than the uh than the intro but i mean this is how my mother tells stories she'll meet someone in the grocery store and and she'll tell me about it and it'll be a, the detour upon detour upon detour before we get to what the woman told her at the grocery store, you know? And so it just feels like, um, you know, that Rufo just is so aware that, that stories aren't from point A to, to point whatever, you know, that they're, that they're, that they're uh, you know, incredibly um, susceptible to, to, to the whim of, of where the storyteller wants to go because he's, it's so vivid in his mind. I mean, and there's so much in the beginning of the story that, like you said, uh, uh, Nachito Revere's brother-in-law, the guy who got himself uh, feeble-minded a few days after getting married, and whose wife Ines, to support herself, had to set up a tapache stand at the point, main road's sentry points, while Nachito would spend his time playing songs that were always out of tune on a mandolin he borrowed from Don uh, Refugio's barbershop. <laughs> that. That's so and good. It, it, and that, it, <laughs> If the mandolin didn't return at the end, and of course it does, right? And 
you know, and, you know, not to be crafty, like, and I cannot, and that's not somebody who likes to talk about, like, let's, let's get crafty, Peter, let's do it. Yeah, right. Well, you know, but, <laughs> but I mean, just, you know, sometimes when you're writing a story, right, and you, you, you realize, oh, wait, what about that mandolin? <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> and then, and then it comes back with, but it's, you know, it's so brilliant and so, uh, you know, I, I, you know, we, we're never going to get in Rufo's mind to know how he ultimately, uh, you know, uses the mandolin in this story, where that idea came from. Probably it came from something real. That's what I assume. But just the fact that he sort of, you know, that he that he puts it out there in the barbershop uh, early on is just remarkable. He he um, I, I was looking up some uh, things about him and he. He, 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 he was very interested in American literature, very interested in European literature, very interested in uh, Nordic literature, particularly uh, New Hamsum um, uh, from Norway. And uh, he, he, but, he, but he objects to, uh, he, he likes Italian, a lot of Italian literature, but he objects at one point in this lecture he gives saying that, you know, they just, nothing's happening. Like he wants something to happen, you know, and, and like, I, it just made me think about in all of his stories, something really does happen, you know, and certainly something happens in this story. So it's not, you know, he, I think he wasn't all like literary, you know, it wasn't all sort of heady. This is, you know, shit goes down and things, you know, these people are uh, uh, doing things that are memorable enough for many years later for our narrator to, you know, insist that his friend remember. I was just quickly about Rufo, I was reading through some of his letters, just getting ready for this talk. And speaking of him liking literature from all over, I found a line he wrote in English to his, the letters are to his wife, Clara. Um, and it's just, just to share him writing in English because I thought it was cool. I am hurry because finished me the ink, he writes at the end of one of the letters. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. You should, uh, you should translate that. Cartas de Clara, I mean, that would, that'd be awesome. Because I've heard about this book. It's sort of a legendary book, right? And I mean, we can't, we don't have access to it. You should call Texas Press right now and tell them. <laughs> I'll, send them the, I'll send them the proposal. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can, could I share uh, another small thing of my background? Yes. With the story. So the brother, uh, the brother-in-law, Nachito, who gets feeble-minded, reminded me of this thing, um, my mom once told me, um, my father brought over a, a friend of his to the house, a buddy of his that worked at the, like dad worked at a maquiladora. So um, they came, I guess, after work. And the friend saw uh, this plant growing in the garden, a plant called toluache, right? And the friend starts laughing. And my mom is there and she says, why, why are you laughing? This plant's just growing in the garden. It's this sort of weed-like plant. I think it has flowers. Um, and he's like, and he, he says, he says to my mom, you know, are you, uh, are you in Tolachando your husband or what? And, and she's just kind of like, what, what do you mean? And, and Tolachar means, um, when you give somebody tea made out of Tolache or a drink made out of Tolache, because it's supposed to sort of make people dumb men so that they then fall in love with the women, right? Like the woman <laughs> would give it to a man. And apparently it is a thing where it, causes brain lesions or something like that. So it just was interesting to me. I don't know if he's sort of alluding to that here or there's some kind of witchcrafty thing going on with the story because then there was also that moment with the, 
with the girl getting the hiccup attack at the elevation, the elevation when the when the priest brings up the the body of Christ, you know, and the girl like can't take it and she gets the hiccups. But then again, I was thinking maybe she's just a little girl, and it's mass in the nineteen teens, and or the twenties, I guess. Um, and she's bored because the priest doesn't even look at the people. He has his back towards the people, and they're speaking in Latin. So she probably just wants to get out of there and pretend she has the hiccups and she gets sugar water, right? I don't know. So <laughs> some interesting things there. But that that brings us, I think, to Urbano gets the shit beat out of him by his mm -hmm. uncle after he's caught with his cousin, you know, in in a dry cistern, playing husband and wife, and then he's marched out of school in humiliation. This is all after the line you mentioned earlier. Maybe he turned bad then or maybe he was that way from birth. And then here's the Urbano story. The Urbano story is, is that it starts out, he, he's, he's with his cousin, they get caught, they both get marched out of school and there's this incredible line about her uh, where- uh, La remendada. Yes. The, 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 about her eyes? About, about, so he is marched out of school and he kind of you know typically says, you know, you'll pay dearly for this. And then Rufo has a new paragraph then it was her turn and she came out pouting like her eyes were looking daggers at people and when she reached the door she let out a sob a screech you were hearing all afternoon as if it were the howl of a coyote it's just remarkable you were hearing all afternoon i mean i think here's the, where the translator i would really give them a lot of props for this is this is where you know exactly sorry yeah this is where you know translation is an imperfect art because yeah this paragraph i was really focusing on it on the new one because he, re he really picked out the, um, not just the humiliation she's feeling, but the anger. That in the original, there's this sort of synecdoche, and it does that with her eyes. It says, raspando los ladrillos, like scraping the bricks, you know, the bricks on the floor. Here it's translated to daggers at the people, which, you know, works, I think, to communicate that anger um, for me. But just, it's something that I totally glossed over because I read that sentence so many times. And it was rereading it, preparing for this and it sort of stood out to me and I was like what, what do you mean you know scraping those bricks on the on the floor it's just I started to pick up on there's a lot of anger here and she has a lot of agency here that I mean that she's not just some uh, victim you know except that the story is really not about her it's almost incidental and yet he pauses and says the next line unless your memory is really faulty you have to remember that you know, it's it just, I mean, this is what I mean, like stories are coming out of this guy's ears. And so, you know, it's, it, it, it's Urbano, like we're kind of channeling into what happened to Urbano, but along the way, like you say, I agree. I mean, this is, I mean, this moment is maybe, maybe the most, you know, most memorable in the whole story. Well, he really slows down for it, right? I mean, he really gives us the, the scene. Yeah. They parade them. I mean, they don't just send them out they, they, they parade them, they make a, what does it say? Um, they, they yanked him by the ears to the main door while everyone left, making him walk through a row of boys and girls to embarrass him. And then his uncle beats him up to a point of uh, him almost being paralyzed. So it's like, you know, yeah. I mean, this is, this is, you know, what happened to Urbano is this, you know, his uncle beats him up to a point of, you know, him probably not being able to walk. He's got a limp at the end. I'm sure it's from that. You know, but of course, we're not dealing with a great guy here, right? As, as, as is, you know, he comes back 
and, and you know, he's in, reincarnated. He leaves town after that, and he's, he comes back in a, in a sentence, really. He comes back as a cop. And then... But he comes back after truth is. And the... After what, sorry? After the words truth is. Yeah. The truth is, we didn't see him. The paragraph right before that it starts with people say. People say. So I'm, I'm interested in in marking where he's saying, remember, and where he's saying something along the lines of people say, and something along the lines of the truth is. Yeah. So um, because it's there in this line that Peter just read, we didn't see him again until he showed up. You know, um, I, I'm, I'm gonna prick up my ears and not that I'm not, you know, all the way through, especially in reading this in, in December of 2020. But um, yeah, I'm paying extra close attention in all of this. What was true, right? What was absolutely certain, or at least truer than everything else that, that we've just gone through? And I mean, Rupo is, and I, I promise not to be hyperbolic, but then I'm always hyperbolic. <laughs> the amount of the amount of things he's trying within just a few paragraphs, like you say, I mean, it's such a, I, I, I love that, Yvette, like, you know, that what he personally witnessed, what he heard other people say, and then like what is objectively true, you know, which is, and here's where we are, this supposedly objectively true. Objectively true is he came, he comes back as a cop and then, you know, of all and, things yeah which you know which means all kinds of things in the context of this time and place to get back to that idea but i do think that um that these stories are you know are you know as universal as they come because you know we all know the people who've come back to town changed and what they end up doing yeah i agree with that and i'm i'm thinking about i don't know people in from my childhood who went through something traumatic in the moment that you that in the moment you feel like wow they can never recover from that and it's it's not the end all you know regañada it's not the end it's not the worst thing that that's ever happened to me right it was um it was a mo it was a moment there that I don't know. I feel like there's there was this shared, not trauma, but the, this shared impact of what they witnessed. Even the ones that were maybe jeering at the two kids, you know, having to be humiliated and and marched out of there. Um, there's just something of some, and I think that's where, I think that's where the emotion of the story comes for me, is the things that occur when we're young that we think will mark us for life. They really don't. But that, you know, we convince ourselves. And then in this telephone game and in this lore of the town, it's the thing you can never live down. You know, I think that's very realistic. And I think it's too bad. But I think it's, I think it's a very realistic thing. Like the things that mark you for life. Maybe put it this way or another way of, like the things that mark you for life when other people are telling your story. I mean, in this, in this case, you know, in, in here, what happens is something happens when he's in fifth grade 
and 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 a few sentences later, you know, which is a lot of years because you don't go from fifth grade to being a police officer, right? <laughs> Anywhere, right? And so, you know, there's the the kind of radical like compression in that. But you know, in 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 our story, in the guy who's telling us the story is that's how it goes. What happened in fifth grade influenced the man he returns to town as. And and going back to that line, um, well, you know, was he always bad from birth? Um, I feel in a way he says that to, um, again, un unburden himself yeah, as if I had no participation in the way the town treated him, you know. Mm. Um, because again, even when he says, oh, he left town, it says he was so mad he left town. Well, did, was he so mad he left town or did they kind of run him out or humiliate him to the point where he had no place there? It seems, it's, it's always um, our narrator, he's always sort of um, washing his hands of, um, of participating in, in ostracizing this, this boy at the time. Mm -hmm. And again, he's not a, this is by no means an angel, right? Uh, Urbano, but, um, there's a lot of, I guess we talked about it already, but really not wanting to admit any kind of um, involvement in the treatment of, of Urbano or that the treatment was unfair or, or messed up in any way. But even though the chronology here is not a straight line, right? We're, we're with the feeble-minded Nachito, it's fifth grade, it's now he's a, this guy's a policeman, right? We're all over the map. But I feel like there, there are some assumptions being made here that move from truth is we didn't see him again to that's when he killed his brother-in-law. I don't necessarily see a line from there to there, but in a retelling and, an, and another retelling and another retelling, this is the way people have connected the dots and this is my 2020 reading of it okay so this is where i went hmm. like no it, it what it it wasn't that it wasn't a cause and effect thing for me this time i mean there's something very sad about reading it that way and and then there for me it it just seems like um it makes sense to me that this anger and rage um that led to this situation with the brother-in-law. I'm not necessarily seeing it in the in I, the line. I, there is because there isn't, it. and 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 that's, and again, not to overblow things, but that's what makes the guy we're talking about today, you know, better than almost anybody who's ever done this that I've ever read. I mean. Now I just completely violated every rule. I'm ever. so no, glad but, you did. No, but you're right. Ca causality is, he, he throws causality out the window between even the hiccups and the <laughs> lifting the body. Like, what's the deal there? Or or the feeble-minded brother-in-law and getting married and becoming feeble-minded. What's the causality there? And then this too, it does. it happens all over the place. No scholar in the universe is going to tell me why he why he decides to kill his brother-in-law just because his brother-in-law decided to come over and serenade him. I mean, the guy's <laughs> obviously completely bananas, right? And yet, you know, that's that's thinking back like we have this storyteller who's just connecting these things that aren't connectable and and you know, like cuz I again, you know, I think it's real folk knew how like you you were saying, Yvette, I mean, that this is how absolutely how people tell stories. 
It's also how people experience things that aren't connected, but they happen. I mean, so how do you talk about them? Look at that. Look at that. He didn't speak to anyone. He didn't say hello to anyone. I mean, just those two sentences. First, he didn't speak to anyone. He didn't say hello to anyone. That's the way people talk. It makes no sense. And yet we totally get it. Right. So, yeah. You know, not to go back on this unreliable narrator thing too much there, Peter, but <laughs> the way the way he sets it up is so, you know, uh, perfect and cinematic. I don't know what you want to call it. You know, they're playing the bells for the souls in the purgatory when he does this. You know, it's it's almost um, the women are inside praying the rosary or the, the people, I think it's, I believe it says. Yeah, the people praying in the rosary and church came running and saw them there and Achito legs up defending himself with the mandolin and Urbano hitting him again and again with the butt of his mouse, like hearing what people were shouting at him, rabbit like a dog from hell. Um, I mean, it's so violent. I mean, it's so he doesn't, brutal. Right, he doesn't shoot him. He, he beats him with the butt of the rifle. And, and wouldn't it have made more sense for him to go back and kill his uncle who beat him up? Right, that yeah. would have been there where you would have had the cause and effect. No, instead he... He 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 kills the feeble-minded mandolin player, you know, who's his brother-in-law, and and you know, every other writer in the universe would have had you know some reason, you know, maybe some kind of thing with the you know the sister, something, and and maybe that was there, and 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 the narrator doesn't know or doesn't care to tell us in this moment or whatever, but it's just so um, almost gratuitous, but then. I mean, the story doesn't end there. And I, you know, I hate to wreck it for people. And I hope we acknowledge that we, we can do that here. But Spoiler the, ending, the ending really does prove like almost the opposite of what I was just saying. Because the end really truly is like, now I understand why we were here. There isn't, it's not random. It's not random why this guy is, and as you started this, Beto, saying he's burdened by, the story and ultimately i think it is it is the end of urban of urbano that 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 makes him want to tell the story again and again you know that, that this uh, somebody who would literally tie the tie the noose of their own rope you know when they're going to be hung for what they've done well it's interesting just going off what you just said there it just occurred to me that in a way as he's talking about the mandolin and, and the scene where he beats him to death it's, it's not as if he blames Nachito, but it, it throws a bit of like, you know, why did it occur to him? You know, it occurred to Nachito to go and serenade him when it was already nighttime, as if, as if doing that was what made Urbano snap and Nachito had some kind of blame for that. It, it just, it's an interesting way of phrasing it from our narrator. Again, like he's trying to make sense of it or trying to give it that causality, right? But yeah, I agree with that. Um, with that ending, right? Just um, he needs you to he needs you to remember this. Like in any sort of kind of studies of fiction or whatever, you, you you kind of want you know in order to feel for Nachito's pain, it, it would have been nice for us to know who, know him in the first place. But Rupa doesn't care about that. He introduces <laughs> him. He does introduce him earlier, but it's not like we spend any time with this guy and then suddenly. His legs are up. He's defending himself. I mean, it's so it's graphically, you know, it, 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 I mean, it's like action for pure action's sake without 
you know, and, until of course then this the final shift in the story. But it's it's a it's 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 a nut it's it's nuts for what he what he what he does in the story. I'm so glad you um called attention to it, Yvette, because I I don't think I ever, I spent enough time with this story in the past. I definitely had not. I mean, even in that scene, there's a detail that I it really jumped out at me now that until some guy who wasn't even from around here came out of the crowd and went and took the rifle from him and hit him on the back with it, who was not even from here. So everybody from the town is just kind of watching these people that they know because they're from the town. They've known Nachito probably their whole lives. And they're just watching him get beat to death. That's the point that always reminds me of the short story, The Blue Hotel. So this idea of every, every sin is a collaboration. Every sin is a collaboration or every murder is a, maybe it's every sin is a collaboration. Right, a beautiful line. If yeah. Even if it's not right, it's a beautiful line. You're talking about, is Stephen Crane? Yeah. yeah. So that the Swede and the card game and the cowboy and the, cowboy was cheating and then the Swede accuses him of cheating and so the Swede died the Swede is killed and then the Easterner stands up and says we're all responsible for this death I knew the cowboy was cheating and I said nothing you know and so and and then he says you know every whatever the line is every sin is a collaborate and then there's this weird line about it's always the fault of 40 women whatever that means <laughs> I never figured out what that one meant but this this always comes to me as I feel like, and I, I'm probably 100% wrong, but this idea of you must remember him since we were classmates at school and you knew him just as much as I did. And what Beto was pointing to is these people in the town knew, the story knew him, and it takes this other guy to come out and do something about it. And so this, it's like this, this, this happens a lot, I think, in, in childhood or in peer groups or, I don't know, in, in small towns and communities. It's like all of these things are happening all around us and some of them are pretty terrible. And sometimes they just keep going on just as a matter of routine and because nobody ever puts a stop to it, whatever that might be. So I feel like, you know, here's this poor, woman with all her dead children scavenging in the you know the garbage and here's this feeble-minded guy and here's you know here's this terrible story of this place this brotherhood of of humanity versus you know a godless universe right like not to get too deep into it but it's like who's gonna who who can do anything to to stop the gears Who's ever going to do anything? Well, life doesn't work that way. Life does not work that way. And short fiction doesn't work that way, right? Fiction doesn't work that way. This, whatever this narrator is doing to give us the story all out of order, not chronologically, blowing the punchline, you know, whatever, is, is the story. This is what we must remember. And this is what, and it's all we have. But the idea of you should remember this to this um, listener who's complicit, perhaps, because it's a collaboration. 
well, what do we do as, as readers? What's the ideal of, not to get to, the ideal of courage, right? In this discussion of Brotherhood of Humanity. What is the ideal of courage in the face of abject poverty? Um, and just, you know, things, the wheels falling off of your freaking life at every turn, and there's nothing you can do to stop it. I think you're right. There's, I was thinking about this, how he returns belong, as a policeman belonging to an institution where in his life all institutions had failed this this boy. I mean, what's that thing? They takes a village to raise a child, something like that? You know, the church failed this kid, the school failed this kid, the townspeople, no one really, right? No, no, nobody really picked up for this kid. And the, I, I keep going back to this thing where he was selling you know, the naranjas con chile, the, the mangoes, you know, he was, he was trying to get his nut, you know, he's trying to do his thing. And, um, and even the friends around him, I mean, seemed to just be using him, the, the thing where they didn't want to pay for that debache. Um, but I think, I mean, sort of going off what you were talking about there, that that's kind of what I um, picked up from that. But nothing, even that, I, again, I keep going back to like what a lesser writer would do with all of that. They might they might gin it up to a point where we do actually feel like oh well he was you know you know we're not going to excuse the violence but we can understand it right it's not understandable what he does to this to this to this brother-in-law oh no I, yeah and I just think that's what's so um, just so surprising and brilliant about it and I think tethered to what it's like out there. Juan Rulfo is the author of Acuérdate, from the collection El Llano en Llamas. It's translated in the collection The Plain in Flames by Elon Stavans and Harold Augenbrom. It's published by the University of Texas Press. Alberto Reyes Morgan is a graduate of the MFA program for writers at Warren Wilson College. He's written and translated for the Voices of Witness Oral History book series titles Solito Solita, Crossing Borders with Youth Refugees from Central America, Underground America, Narratives of Undocumented Lives, and others. His story, Salt, was published in the fall 2020 issue of the Michigan Quarterly Review. The essay, Unforgivable, by Peter Orner, appears in the memoir and essays, Am I Alone Here? Peter Orner is also the author of five other books, including the story collection, Maggie Brown and Others. He holds the professorship in English and creative writing at Dartmouth College. This has been The Lonely Voice with Peter Orner from Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Bree Kirkham is our digital producer. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides. <laughs>